Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. This morning, I get to preach and I'm so excited to preach. It's a huge privilege to preach here at Milnerton. haven't preached for a couple of weeks, so I'm rearing to go. Um, I've been uh, reading a book, which is amazing to some people. They're like, you can read? Wow, I know, it's phenomenal. The things they teach you in Zimbabwe, I tell you. But anyway, I've been reading and, uh, and I've stumbled upon, because um, I've stumbled upon this story, and I'm a, I'm a man who loves a good story. So if I get a great story, I make note of it, because I know this will come in handy one day, either at church or when I'm trying to impress Fiona at home at dinner time, because as husbands, we're not given websites like that with conversations to have with our wives, so I have to have good stories to tell. But uh, there was this, this, this man in, this, in, in Scotland, and this was just after William Wallace. So if you're wanting to know historically where does this fit in, just think Braveheart. This is just after Braveheart. Is this man named Robert the Bruce. You know you're, you're hardcore when you've got the before your surname. Robert the Bruce. I thought I'd be Gabe the Phillips for a while. But this guy, Robert the Bruce, was a Scottish noble. And he rode up, rose up to lead Scotland after William Wallace's execution. So this man, Robert the Bruce, he died in 1329 at age 54. But he was very sick before leading up to his death. It was, he knew it was coming. So while in his sickbed, Robert the Bruce called those around, his closest friends, compatriots, those who, who, who knew he had his heart. And he said to him, he had one request. He says, when I die, I want you to take out my heart. It's very gory and very like fighting talk, you know. He says, take out my heart. And he says, I want one warrior, one worthy knight to take it on a crusade with him. I want, I want my heart to go into battle. And it was a stirring thing. And there was this man called James Douglas who was his closest friend of Robert the Bruce. He wasn't James the Douglas quite yet. He was a junior, you know, James Douglas. And uh, what happened when, when Robert the Bruce died? The heart was embalmed. It was put into a small container. And Douglas carried that around his neck for a few years to come. And in, in dramatic fashion, every battle Douglas went, he went with the king's heart around his neck. In 1330, a year after the king died, after doing a, a countless battles with the heart around his neck, he found himself in Spain, in Granada there, and there was in this, in this one war where things just got a little bit bigger than he could comprehend, and he realized he and his team were surrounded. And, and a certain death. He knew this was probably the end for us. And, and, and D- James, uh, James Douglas, what he did in this dramatic moment he got the, the heart, he took the heart out of the container and he threw it into the enemy. And he said this thing, he said this, fight for the heart of your king. And then, and, and then some poets around, they've, they've attributed this quote of him saying, forward, brave heart, as ever thou were wont to do, and Douglas will follow his king's heart or die. And for that tribe, the Douglas tribe, the Douglas clan in Scotland, for years went by, that became their tribe's motto. And as it was passed on from, from family to family to family, it just got shorter and shorter and shorter till to this day, the clan Douglas in Scotland, the motto emblazoned on their crest and in their heart is just this one word, forward. All the way linked back to this crazy man, James Douglas, who took the heart of his king and said, forward onto the heart of the king, fight for him. And, uh, and something in that story, when I read it, gripped me. Because I, I'm, 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 I don't know, even though I'm domesticated, I'm, I'm, a little, you know, I'm, I'm into the niceties of life, the comforts I enjoy having DSTV at home, I do, if I can confess to you today. I enjoy the high-speed internet. I get frustrated at the end of the month when it gets slow, you know. And I'm like, curse you, Satan. 
and telcom. No, but you know, I'm one of those guys, I like the comforts, but when I read that, something in me grips me, and I'm like, there's got to be something more. I'm like, there's that, that primal, medieval, like courageous, let's do this type of thing. And I, and I read in Scripture, and I realize that actually something's changed in my heart over the years, and at times the, those comforts get in a little bit too deep, and I realize that we, we move from being a tribe of renegades to being a religion of conformists very quickly. When Jesus, he came and he called, the things that Jesus called his disciples to, he started this whole thing by saying, come, follow me. He finished it by saying, go. And he said it in the, in the middle of this, and I will, he said, I will give you my Holy Spirit. I'll pour out my Spirit on you, and, this, and you will receive power. And you know, it's amazing that call, because I think very slowly as a church, and I say this to myself, we take those calls, come follow me, go and you'll receive power, and we switch around to, just come and listen, and we say, instead of saying go, where the preacher tells you no, and what not to do, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, and actually says, instead of you'll receive power, says you'll receive a free cappuccino if you come back. <laughs> and it's, as much as I mock those things, because we really, we do love coffee, and that's not the, the enemy, but I've realized those things can so simply get in and placate us, and we just become a religion of conformists. Am I the only one? I'm preaching to myself this morning. And I want to, I pray, and I believe that as I read this clan, the Douglas clan, who, who are known as a tribe called Forward, I really believe that you and I, this Milneton crew, this motley crew of God have called together, whether this is your first day or you've been coming for the last four months of our existence, we've been called together to be a, a tribe called Forward. A people who fight for the king's heart. Not a people who gather and say, come and listen, come and have a free coffee and pat each other on the head and do church. That's not what we're on about. We're called a tribe Forward because that's where God is calling us to. And I want to tell you what we're doing as a church in this regard. And from next week onward, we start a series in the book of Philippians, four chapters. So if you want to prepare for that, we're going to be in that book for about six weeks. And it's a radical, radical book written by a man named Paul who's in prison and possibly facing death. And he's writing to a church about joy. When a man in prison is trying to tell you about joy, you've got to listen to that guy because he's either on something really good or he's onto something really good. And we want to explore that, that, that book and we want to dig deeper into it. So I'd encourage you, go read it this week. It's four chapters. It'll take you 20 minutes if you're, if you're a slow reader. 20 minutes. Go read it. Start studying it because I think God wants to speak to us through it. But today, in effect, what I'm wanting to do before that series is to propel us a little bit forward because we're moving in that direction as a church. I want to, in effect, tie the king's heart around every single person's chest. I want you to leave with the heart of our king around your chest, around your neck, because I believe that will propel you forward in the things of God, will propel you out of the stagnant life. So I want to ask you a question. Have you, sir, man, grown fearful? Have you, sir, man, become stagnant? Are you not seeing breakthrough in your life? where you once did or, or you once yearned and dreamt of it, but you're not anymore. I want to tell you today that today is your day. So I want to pray, and we're going to read scripture, and then we will have coffee together. Don't worry, we will not ban the coffees. But we'll enjoy them with our hearts around the neck. Father, I pray this morning, as we gather, as we've worshipped, as we've enjoyed and indulged in you, and, and lifted you up and exalted your name as the highest name, 
Not our church, not our, our, not our stories, not our opinions, but you, Jesus. As you are the center in this church, I say today, God, would you teach us to receive your heart and make it the most important thing in our lives? And then, God, from that place will we be able to be unleashed to pursue it with everything we have. I thank you for this tribe called Forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. What are we preaching this morning? The title of it in, the, in, the, in this notion, the sense of forward and after the king's heart is when the church prays. That's the title uh, we called to preach on this week as a church is when the church prays. The reason why is because on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're gathering as a church to pray. And I want to hopefully today, by the end of it, you will be convinced that prayer is not some strange thing that, or that fanaticals do or a, a somber thing that old ladies only do, but it's actually something we are all called to do with forward momentum in our hearts, and that actually is the very key to our forward momentum. So I'm wanting to grip us with that, if that's all right. But I want to read a couple of quotes. A man named Andrew Murray, he said this, The man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelism in history. When I read that quote, I said, pick me, pick me. If I can mobilize one person to pray, then I'm doing my job. If I can mobilize myself to pray, that's okay as well. But I'm praying there's going to be more than ones or two because that man will mobilize the Christian church in the greatest way and make the greatest contribution in world evangelism history. Another quote says, every single, person, every single season of awakening in the church has been characterized by intense, pers- persistent corporate prayer. There's a quote behind me I'd love us to read. It's by a name, man named Samuel Chadwick, if that's all right. Let's read it together. So there. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless religion. The enemy fears nothing from prayerless religion, prayerless work, and prayerless studies. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals. That's me. That's me. That's you. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power, women of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. When I read these things, it stirs me, stirs in me. And I want to ask you a question, a question that D.A. Carson says that will make naked anybody's attempts at pursuing God. Are you ready for that question? How is your prayer life? And all of us look around going, hmm, hmm. And I am that same person. If that question comes to me, I'm actually, if I'm honest, if I can be honest, I think I've failed at leading us as a people in prayer. I failed because I think mainly because I haven't valued it as highly as I probably should have, if I'm honest. Is that okay? Is it okay if I make confessions as we go? So we can see we're in this together. But I want to tell you today, as I don't ask that, how is your prayer life to, to expose us or to go, oh, we've got to pray more, oh, the pastor said so. No, 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 no. I want to entice us in that. And in this journey, tie the king's heart around your neck and you feel it. The call of this is what's driving me forward because I want to show you that prayer is, the heart, is in the heart of the king. And I want to then show you what prayer brings to us. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 12. But before we get there, don't turn there first because we're going to go to Luke chapter 11. There's two passages we're going to look at here in Luke. And Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 13, before we read some of the verses there, but go read at home, Jesus teaching on prayer. It starts with the disciples asking Jesus, teach us to pray. 
The disciples asked Jesus. And I love it. They, they, they saw it. They didn't come and say, Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to preach. Jesus was good at preaching. The crowd came because he was a great teacher. But they didn't say, teach us how to teach or teach us how to preach. They didn't say also, teach us how to do those miracle things. And, and the guys are back, ooh, ooh, start us the walking on water one. That's cool. Teach us how to do that. What is it light? What, what's the illusion? How do we do it, Jesus? No, they didn't ask that. They made the link that Jesus' power was somehow linked to his prayer life. So they asked him, teach us how to pray. When was the last time you and I asked that of God? If I'm honest, not a long time. I mean, quite a long time. So I want to tell you this thing that he said, teach us to pray. And then Jesus tells him the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray like this. But then he goes on to this, this bizarre passage. And we're going to have, you look at this. It says this, then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. It's a strange story, if I'm, if I'm honest. Jesus said, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. Before we go on, just take note, they say midnight. Now in our culture, you guys go, that's not too late, you know. I'm usually watching series till then, so it's fine, you know. No, 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 midnight for them... Light went out at 6, that's the middle of the night. That's your 3 a.m. for us type slot. Now, so just in your head, someone comes in, it's inopportune time. You're dozing. Now also, you've got to know in their culture, they slept in one room, the whole family. Wake up one man, it's not like a little private text on the side. Okay, I'm going to slip out in the night. He has to climb over, sorry son, sorry, oh, the baby's crying now. The whole home is awake. And the guy comes and he's like, what is it? Who's died? I need three loaves of bread. A mate's just come over to visit. Um, now, you know what? Three loaves of bread could feed a family of six for a week. So this wasn't some like, I'm dying. I need food. Please help me. Uh, you know, this is just the tire. I've crashed the car. Or the internet's just run out. It's not a real emergency like that. It was, it was just some excessive request. A friend just popped over um, basically saying, do you have any of that? Um, some, I need some bucks for KFC for my mate. You know? What? It's inopportune time. It's excessive, the request. And this is what happens. Says, Jesus says, but I tell you, the guy would say, just go away. But Jesus says, I tell you this. Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Another translation says, your impu- impudence, your, your arrogance, your irritation. This is Jesus teaching on prayer. <laughs> I'm like, what? For real? And this is, I, I love this, this, this sort of thing. Then Jesus goes on. If, you, if we go to the next one, he, this is the famous part we probably will know, but it's out of that context he says, so I tell you, this is how you are supposed to pray. Keep asking and you will receive. Keep knocking, keep seeking, keep being at, at inopportune times, excessively, ask me stuff. That's God. He's saying, ask me. Okay? Now I want to tell you, Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Luke didn't teach on things twice. He was like, I speak once, you listen. Because he's the teacher. No, he's the only one who gets to do that. But then, on prayer, he speaks twice. Luke 18. Luke 18, is all, it won't be on the screen, but, but I'd love you to go read it. It's again, a bizarre text. It's about Jesus teaching on prayer, and he tells him, there was this judge, and this man was unrighteous, and angry, and not a friendly guy to approach. And he said, then there was this old lady who was a widow. And she used to come to him every day and say, 
I need justice for me. I need justice. I need justice. And the judge got irritated and irritated and irritated. And it said until the very end, the judge was so irritated that he eventually just relented and said, for the sake of my sanity, I'm going to give her justice. And then Jesus says, just like that, you must pray. And I read it and I'm going, what's going on there? Is, 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 God saying, is Jesus saying that God's like the judge? That angry that we need to do it? No, no, no. Jesus is not comparing God to the judge. He's actually saying, contrast the God to the judge. If you read the end of it, he says, God is your father. He's not a judge, but even a judge, when he's pestered, will give you what you want. So he says, as I'm a father, come and pester me. He invites us. That is what prayer is like. I say that because I think we've got a weird view of prayer. You just have to listen to people pray. Christians pray sometimes. You're like, what are they talking about? The people of Christians, we pray for things like traveling mercies. I'm like, what is that? Looks in the Bible. It's not there. But we pray it. Hedge of protection, Lord. How do I get this hedge? And wouldn't a wall be better? Just a thought. Anyway. Sorry, I digress. But Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is the main text. We're going to find uh, 19 verses. These are just key things just to whet our appetite, stir us, tie the king's heart around our neck and call us forward. Acts chapter 12. We're going to read it together. It'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 1 says, About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. James, who was he? Head of the church. The early church. He was the main manna. The head honcho. Herod that's how easy it was to take out the head honcho. That's the Holy Spirit, by the way, the dove. No, I'm just joking. It's not. That's just a bird. <laughs> Some of you are like, God's here. No, he's not. It's just a bird. <laughs> he is here. <laughs> but that's not him. <laughs> are you guys even listening? Sheesh, come on. In. I apologize. <laughs> My wife's like, he is. Welcome to church. You don't know what animals we're going to release next. Yeah? <laughs> right, Acts chapter 12. James was the head of the church and Herod just had a bad day and said, actually, I'm done with this church thing. It's irritating me. Head off, chopped off, ISIS-style thing. It was public execution. James is done, like that. And second, there wasn't a petition. There wasn't a lobby group. It was like, James is dead. That's what you read in the Bible. Then he moves on. He says, when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, those who weren't in the church, he also arrested Peter, number two, the vice. Okay, we're going to take him down as well. So he arrests Peter, he imprisons him and places him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. So he was going to kill Herod as well. Uh, Herod, <laughs> struggling here. Herod was going to kill Peter as well. But then we find this kick of a verse. Verse 5, it says this, But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. I love that. I love that verse. We'll get back to it. Then we read on. Verse 6, I'm just going to keep reading. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side. Just a footnote, that word struck is the hardest word that, in Greek that they could use for an angel hitting someone, or for anyone hitting someone. This wasn't the angel going, wake up. The angel just dulled him. Get up. 
just for your own note, if you're wanting to understand what the scripture, I love that in the scripture. The angel punched Peter, get up. Okay, like sure. Sometimes I say yes, Lord, when my wife gives me a punch in the middle of the night. So it's actually just her. Anyway, the angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard post and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. That's how exciting and shocking it was. Can I come in? No. He's here. It's like, I've just got to escape from prison. I probably should come in. I love that. This is the response of the people who are earnestly praying for Peter to be set free. They go, you're out of your mind. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Other translations, it must be his ghost. What they mean there is they probably thought he's already died. And his, he's like, his spirit has come here now. They already... They, He's probably dead already. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened. And then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When, they couldn't find, when he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. We'll finish with that passage now. But three things this morning, if it's all right. Three things I want to tell you from this passage, what prayer will bring to you. If that's all right, this is my sales pitch to invite you, entice you in. Number one, prayer brings perspective. Number one, prayer brings perspective. To be honest, when I read that passage, I realize that the church who were gathered to pray, pray for, for Peter, pray for them. I don't know what they were exactly praying for. The Bible doesn't tell us, but they're praying in relation to this thing that was happening. They probably weren't expecting much except that Peter was to die. I'll be honest, because they were so shocked that Peter actually came out. They were like, my prayers worked. Like, what? They weren't like these fighting fit soldiers at the front of the prayer. They were just some scared people who were nervous and they did not know what else to do. So they said, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. And I want to tell you that prayer brings perspective, because this is how it works. Psalm 73, if you go read it, it's this morbid psalm. This man named Asaph, he's, he's, he's speaking to God, and he sounds like what I think you and I sound like a lot of the time. He's verse 1 to halfway through that chapter. He's just going, life sucks, God. I have no money, and I follow you. The guys who don't follow you, I've got money. He says, God, this, this thing does not work. This, he goes, all my, I, don't, I don't have any of the girls, I don't have any of the gold, I don't have any of the fame, I've got nothing. They all got it, and I'm serving you. This isn't right. Sulk, 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 throw a tantrum, throw his toys out the cot, and I go, hey, that's my prayer life. <laughs> oh, I see it. 
But there comes this verse in the middle, this hinge verse, that says this, I felt this way until I entered your sanctuary. This is verse. And then the tone of his psalm changes. If you go read it, this profound change in this man. And you say, what happened there? Did his circumstances change? No, but he started to understand who God was in his circumstance. And the first understanding for you and I is that when we understand that what prayer does, our perspective shifts. Let me tell you in this way, these days I think as people, we pour fuel onto our fear by running to Facebook. I look at I look at the comments around the, the economy, about the political thing, about race issues, about the church. My mates are all over Facebook and defending and attacking and this and this. And I realize this sort of thing here, that we've become a people of opinion when we've actually been called the people of his heart. But we are people of opinion. I've got to tell you what I think. When actually God said, no, I don't care what you think. I want you to pray. I want you to pray. That, that does a blow to free speech, doesn't it, right there? Philippians 4, if I can read it for you. I love this thing. I just think these are key things for us. Philippians 4 tells us this. Paul says, don't worry about anything. Well, it's easy for you to say, Paul. No, he was in prison. So it's not easy for him to say. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then, you see, at my Bible, I've underlined then, because it says, pray about everything. It says, then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. I've heard lots of Christians say, God, give them the peace that passes all understanding. Beautiful. God wants to give us peace. But the Bible says what precedes peace is pray. Oh, oh, I knew there was a cash somewhere. The peace. No, no, the Bible says it, and we are a Bible people. It says pray about everything, and then, guaranteed, you'll have a perspective change. You'll receive the peace that surpasses whatever you are facing. Prayer brings perspective. Can I tell you, if you want to learn how to sleep better, learn to pray. I promise you. This is the sort of thing. Eugene Peterson, he says this. He says there are two types of prayers in the Psalms. Evening prayers and morning prayers. An evening prayer, he says, is when you come to God and you pray. Psalm 4 is an example he uses. But you come and you pray to God and you bring to Him in the night what you're worried about, disappointed with, sad about, and afraid of. And why it's evening prayer? Because you tell God that, and you go, thanks God, good night, and you sleep like a baby. Can I tell you why? There's a company in America, uh, that, uh, I read an article yesterday, where guys, you know that, that book, How to Get Your Four-Hour Week, so you know, how to actually work slower, and, and they say, I'll source everything. And this guy said he actually paid somebody in India, he worked in America, there's this big company, he said the biggest stress was he couldn't sleep at night because of all the pressures of work and this had to be done. So he thought, how can I stretch this outsourcing thing? He paid someone in India, he said, listen, from the hours in America of 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., I will pay you to worry about my business. <laughs> and that person outsourced their job phone in the morning. Sir, I've worried all night, I've thought about it, I, I, you know, I've put out some fires, but I've worried about what... And he says, I've never slept better in years. Silly illustration. But we get to outsource our worry. That's an evening prayer. That's, and I want to say, you say, where do I start? Pour out your worries, your concerns, your fears, your anxieties onto him, and then you get to rest well. Welcome to Calvinism. 
I want to tell you, you get to outsource your fears to the one who never slumbers. You get to outsource your fears to the one who knows every hair on your head. He's the one who knows even when one hair on your head falls to the ground. Some of you, he's been taking notice more than others. But anyway, so I want to point to John. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I want to say this. It sounds cheesy, but for me, it's gripped my heart afresh. It's turn your fear to prayer, and your prayer will turn, to, will turn your fear. Turn your fear to prayer, and I promise you, prayer will turn your fear around. You'll have a different perspective. Prayer brings perspective. Secondly, prayer brings passion. John Piper says it this way. He says, until you know life is a war, you won't know what prayer is for. A lot of us, and I'm, I'm the first one, that's why I, I told you that I, I feel we've been seduced and lulled into comfort living. We think this thing is easy and, and then we understand if we think this is not wartime and that we just are going through life and religion or church or God is just an add-on to our existence, then we use prayer as like a domestic intercom. More tea, please. This tea is a bit cold. Heat it up, please. When actually prayer is not a domestic intercom, it's a walkie-talkie in wartime. We need you now here. We need you here. We need your power. We need more resources for this thing. Because prayer fuels our passion. I want to tell you this understanding is that, again, I hear prayers, those things, and not to mock them, but even that prayer, and I prayed often, would God just be with me today? And he goes, I promised you that. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Ask me something else. That's what God is doing. I we've, we've loaded to comfort level prayers about these quaint little things when God is saying, knock, ask, seek, wake me up, call me. That's the want that He's inviting us to do that. And I, I really want to believe this morning, I want to put in our hearts that the enemy is fighting for the passion, he's fighting for the desire in your heart, he's fighting for your affections, he's trying to seduce you to lukewarm passivity. Sometimes his greatest thing is just keeping us off our knees. I don't even have to be sinning that badly. Just keep them from understanding that they're carrying the king's heart. I want to tell you in this incredible thing. I've had, after church, sometimes people come and say, Hey, Gabe, I've been lukewarm. I need prayer. So can you pray for my passionless heart? Can I tell you what my response is? No! You pray for your passionless heart. Because your prayer will fuel your passion. I will just placate you and you'll leave going, oh, thank goodness that's done. Oh, great, I got my prayer. No! God has given us authority. There's, there's nowhere else in the scripture saying, get someone else. Yes, it says, get them if you're sick, get others to pray for you. But God, most times in prayer, says, you pray. You seek me. You come and find me. And can I tell you, as we pray, if your heart right now, I want to tell you, if your heart is lukewarm, if your heart is going apathetic, pray. Ask God. And he tells us in the scriptures, I'm the Father, I will give you the Holy Spirit if you ask. It's a promise. He'll fuel that passion in your heart. Thirdly and finally, for time's sake, is that prayer brings power. We see in the story, Peter gets set free in dramatic dramatic ways, where they didn't even expect it. They were like, they're like imagine if you asked that prayer, that team, what are you praying for about Peter? Uh, that he doesn't suffer too badly when the head gets, goes off. Or, or at least maybe then the, the trial will be delayed by some supernatural way and, and they'll go on for hours and years and years and years and Peter will, just, will be able to visit him in prison you know, and keep him happy. 
I don't know, maybe that was their prayers, but I don't think they probably would have prayed, God, would an angel rock up there, smack him awake, tell him to put his clothes on, break the chains off, and walk him straight out the doors. I don't know if they maybe even had faith for that sort of prayer. But they were praying, and God goes beyond our, even our little words. Even our, he just he says, I see a little bit of faith. I can work with that. And sometimes I'm thinking, what are the things God's wanting to do with us, but no one's asking? I won't tell you even that thing. He goes further. If you go read the end of the story, Herod, not only does Peter get set free, the next time Herod gets up and speaks, he starts speaking, and people flatter him and say, he's talking like a god. He's amazing. He's an amazing man, Herod. And Herod receives their praise, and in that moment, God, from those prayers, it's the very next stanza, is Herod gets struck down, he eats worms, he says, I've got worms, like Dumb and Dumber, but a little bit worse. I've got worms, he eats worms, and he dies. Little church, and I love that. They say Mary and John Mark's home, it's a small little, it's not even Jesus' mother, this is a different Mary, these are no-name brand people who gather in the home, pray for Peter, a political leader dies, who's been oppressing them, and their leader gets set free. This is like crazy. This is like political espionage of the highest level, and God goes, yeah, it's easy, just pray. What shall I do? I want to tell you, John Wesley said this, he says, I'm convinced God does nothing except an answer to prevailing prayer. He says again, I'm, he's convinced, he's very convinced, this guy. He says, I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, that every soul saved will be a result of prayer. Somehow, Somebody, God only in his sovereignty, yes, we believe God is sovereign, that, that he will do what he wants to do. But in that sovereignty, God has called this thing, he's put into motion this relationship with you and I called prayer, and he says, ask me, knock, seek me, and watch what I will do. And I think we, the, for me, that heart around here, the tribe forward, if we want to be people who are forward, we have to pick up this call. It's something I think I have let go I want to pick it up again. Charles Spurgeon says this, Prayer is a slender nerve that moves the hand of omnipotence. Prayer is a slender nerve that moves the hand of omnipotence. It's just this, the mighty hand of God that's wanting to be outstretched and rescue and save and, and redeem and restore, that's desperate to do it, is going for it, and, and just, he's waiting. And a prayer that just tickles and just irritates. Thank you. He's calling us. Prayer is just a slender nerve that moves the hand of omnipotence. And he says this, I want, uh, prayer is not a, a blanket to douse the fire. It's not there like a warm blanket as Karl Marx said, an opiate for the masses, religion and prayer. Uh, no, it's not a blanket to douse the flames, but I say it's rather fuel to ignite the flames. Prayer brings power. Why? Because Jesus said in that thing, that whole stand, he says, ask me as a father and I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, if you ask God, He'll pour out the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the best thing that you can ask for for your family. The best thing you can ask for your business, for, your fa- for, your, for our church, for our nation, is God, give us more of your Spirit. And He said, I will give it if you ask. I'll give it if you ask. Don't mess with the church on its knees. Every time they pray, the church explodes. In the book of Acts, Acts 2, they pray. 10 minutes, 3,000 get saved. Acts chapter 4, they pray. They go, you guys have turned the city upside down. Acts chapter 5, they're up to 10,000 in number because they've just been praying. Acts chapter 12, we've just read the prison breaks and kings are dying. In Acts chapter 13, a terrorist named Paul gets set apart to be a missionary and becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever known except for Jesus Christ. Why? Because the church were praying. 
final thought is this. Bring it back to our main man, the hero of our story, Jesus Christ. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the precipice of the moment that would change history, the night before he was about to die and shed his blood for eternity, for every single human being that's ever lived and will live, the greatest moment, the centerpiece of history. And what do we find Jesus doing? He is praying. And it's not some religious prayer, though he is called our high priest. It's not that he's the he's one who knows he knows everything. He's the, one, he's the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega, Jesus. He knows it all. And we find him praying. And why? Because the anxiety of the moment was getting overwhelming. So he needed a perspective shift. He says, I don't want to take this cup. He says, but Father, not my will. Yours be done. His perspective changed. He needed to understand the, the passion. They call this very thing, Jesus died on the cross, is the passion of the Christ. And the thing that fueled him and led him to the cross, that last moment, was he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He prayed, called up, and fueled the passion in his heart. And the power of God was released in that moment as well. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. In that moment, he became, the, the, the great exchange happened. The, the, he became sinful man. We became righteous because of Jesus, because he prayed and then reacted in obedience towards that prayer life. I want to tell you this incredible thing, the confidence. Why do we have confidence in prayer? No, it's not because of prayer. No, it's not because we've got the secret weapon called prayer that is amazing and we've got to learn the five secrets to prayer. No, that's why I have not told you how to today, if you've noticed. I haven't. Because I'm not here to tell you how to. It's not my job. Why? Because prayer is not the end. Prayer is a means to end. Prayer is powerful because on the other end of it is not a cranky judge. On the end of our prayers is not a neighbor who you've woken up at three in the morning and irritated. No, the person who is on the other end of our prayer is a father. It's dad. He's come to me. Ask, oh, seek, knock, and I will give you. So I want to ask you this as we land. Have you grown fearful? Have you become stagnant? Are you not seeing breakthrough? If any of those, you can say, yes, 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 and I pray some of us do, I pray all of us do. I want to ask you the question again. How's your prayer life? Not to condemn you, not to expose you, but to invite you to put the king's heart around your neck and say, forward, forward. And the only way we're going to advance is with calluses on our knees. Because we've been praying. Not with bravado. That gets us nowhere. So this is my prayer for you and I. My prayer for me is that I'm saying this, God, I want to become a person of prayer. I want to be praying this prayer. It sounds so weird to say it, but this is the truth. I want to pray this. I am needy, and you are generous. The Father loves that prayer. I need you. I'm going to ask of you. I'm going to knock. I'm going to seek. He said, great. I'm your dad. You will find. You will have the door opened. You will receive. And I want us to pray, God, would we become fathers of prayer? Would we become mothers of prayer? Would we become neighbors of prayer? Would we become friends of prayer? That people go, wow, that's a man and a woman of prayer. So this is how we're going to land this morning. I am going to pray, believe it or not. There you go. But before we do that, you have found a, a little form on your seats. I'm going to ask us this as an activation to propel us. Because sometimes we go, yes, yes, yes. And, and I apologize, we've gone a little bit later today, but I... I just feel it's important for us to take these moments. I'm going to ask you to do it. There's three questions on that form. 
Question number one says, which friend, family member am I trusting for God to save? If they are next to you this morning, just put an X. <laughs> but I, I, why is that important? You're saying, oh, church, you're always just trying to, trying to like win people over. Yes, that's what Jesus has called us to do. And we are so desperate that people would find and meet the Savior Jesus because we've been convinced He's the only hope. So we are going to be a people that will pray for those who do not know Jesus. Is that all right? So I'm going to ask you, put some names down. Second question is, what breakthrough am I trusting God for in my personal life as we pray this week? We've put as a church prayer on the agenda. We're feasting with it as well. Why? We're not fasting because this time fasting is good, but we're feasting because we believe that God has already given us everything we need in life and godliness. He's already given us Jesus, and we're going to feast on his nature, and we're going to pray and know, trust and believe. Not because we are trying to impress them, saying, look at us fasting. We're actually going to say, God, we're just participating with what you're doing. We will fast again in the future, but this week, we're trusting for a shift. So what breakthrough are you trusting for with, in God in your personal life? And thirdly, what am I trusting God to do in our country as we pray this week? I ask that one because maybe you sit here and you go, oh, we're just a handful of people here in Milton. What has that got to do with us? Everything. One small group can pray and the leader of the church gets set free. The political power dies. We're not praying for anyone to die. Just saying. Just saying. But we are praying for God to intervene in corruption, in racism, in the hearts of men and women because God has called this nation to beautiful things. And can I tell you, we believe that prayer is the answer. We don't just say it as a platitude, we're going to do it. So we're going to give you 30 seconds to finish that. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to go with the hearts of the king around our neck and go have coffee. As you finish up there, I don't want to rush you because I know these are important things. But I'm going to ask you if it's okay, if you're comfortable, just to leave it on your seat as well. We want to collect them and we can pray. If you, if you want to take it home, that's more, you're more than welcome. But we would also love to pray with you. So you don't have to put a name on it. You don't have to put your name or anything or surnames. Just, we, just want, we want to be able to pray with you in this thing because we really are trusting that God will do something incredibly bigger than we could even plan or strategize. But I just want to land by praying for us. But firstly, I want to commend us and just say, well done. I, I think we are, God is doing something phenomenal. We've been going for four months as a church. And God is already giving us the testimonies that are coming out of our influence in Milton High School, in their area, what God has done in people's lives here already. God is using us dramatically. So this is not a, a pun saying, you, we're doing badly. No, this is God, us saying, God has called us to more. This is us saying, we are so grateful, but we're not satisfied. That's the nature of the Father. He calls us to be grateful, but then gives us just, it says, come more, because I've got more for you. 